0: All right. Well, hey, we're 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 back. It's um it's hard to believe. It's another it's another Wednesday, and I was just telling Ben, you know, this is like the first Wednesday. It was like too cold to be comfortable outside all day. So we've we've definitely crossed crossed over into the next season. Um, but uh, just so fun to be here. Um, with you all this has just been a highlight of, of my week and, and for Janet, Madeline and I. I'm Gabe, if we haven't met. Um, I hope over the course of the weeks that we have together, we get a chance to, uh, to connect and talk um, over, over some great food. Um, just once again, wanna thank um, Tammy and Sarah. Uh, let's just give them a round of applause for... <clears throat> just, just, um, just a great job putting all this together uh, each week. Um, well, today we're going to talk about uh, creation, and, but first I really want to talk about story. and Because I think this is, this is the big thing that you know, over, over this eight weeks, we don't want to miss, uh, is, is the idea that the scriptures are one big story that's telling um, the true story of, of what God's doing in the world. Um, but, but why story? Why use story? Why not? You know, and I think some of us may, uh, as we read particularly Genesis, start to get into, like we want, just give me the facts. Just give me the facts about what happened, you know, and we're, we're digging in, we're looking for the facts and maybe reading it like a science book. But the reality is it's a story, right? Um, but what makes story so powerful? And uh, as I was thinking about that, I thought, well, I'll just, I'll tell you a little story. Um, and so I started with, um, this, this object, which if you can see it, it's a pocket knife. Okay. It's a craftsman. It's an old craftsman pocket knife. And so, you know, I could pass this around and you could, you could look at it and, and we could study it and we could, we could measure this knife and we could see how sharp it is. And we could talk about all the things that it could do. And we could probably come up with thousands of facts about this little, little tiny knife. Um, but to really understand this knife, you have to understand a story, uh, is that when I was five years old, my mom's dad, who's my granddaddy, Bill, they lived right across from Park Road Shopping Center on, on Murray Hill Drive, I think it was. And uh, I remember it was, it was November and the leaves were starting to fall in Charlotte. And I, I remember that my, my dad had a leaf vacuum. Anybody have a leaf vacuum, all the leaves that fall? I'm wait, I need to get your name and get your, get your leaf vacuum. So my dad had this leaf vacuum, but my grandfather didn't. And I remember we loaded up in uh, the station wagon, me and my, my younger brother, Kyle, I was five, he was three. We get in the blue station wagon with the leaf vacuum and we go to spend the weekend with my grandparents. And so we were out there on, you know, on a beautiful autumn afternoon. And uh, my grandfather, he's, he's getting the leaves with the vacuum and we're you know, pretending to rank or, or whatever and help. And, uh, and I remember it started to rain, it started to rain. And so my grandmother like rushed us inside and we went and set at their uh, kitchen counter, which I remember had that fake um, green marble countertop. You remember that? And, like the Formica, there it is. Yeah, that's what it was. It was the Formica <laughs> countertop on the little, little stools. And we're sitting there and we're eating our milking and cookies, and life was good. And, um, and then all of a sudden it wasn't um, because the back door flew open and my grandfather was standing there and he was white as a sheet. And um, he fell over and he collapsed right there on the floor and he had a massive heart attack. And when I was five, he, he died um, right in front of me. And this is the only thing that I have for my grandfather is this knife. And so this knife isn't just a knife. It's not just about how long it is and uh, what you can do with it and all those wonderful things that we could study about it. This knife is a story and it's a story that's a relational story. And it's a story that to understand me, you have to understand the knife, right? And where that came from. And so as I was thinking about the scriptures, you know, I I think that's how they are. Um, and why it's so important that we look at them first and foremost before we get into all, and there's so many wonderful facts that we can extrapolate, and we can study, and we can get down in the verses, and we can study the ancient languages, and we can pull it all apart, and it's beautiful and good, and I love doing all that stuff, but if we miss that it's a beautiful story that's about a relationship, then we miss what it's really actually about. We miss we miss the knife um, in the story. Um, so, that's the concept of, of story. It's a relational way that we convey truth. Um, and so the scriptures are one true story of, of the whole world. And, and last week, Chris did a beautiful job uh, describing how the one true story of the world in the scriptures points us always to Jesus. And that's the, that's the beauty. And we're going to see that even today. Like just the intricacies. That even from the first verses, we see this is going somewhere. It's this relational story, but it's going somewhere and where it's going is, is, is Jesus. And so that kind of sets us up for the creation narrative. And so we're going to jump in and, um, you know, here's a, um, if you have never read the drama of scripture, I had to put this up here because this isn't the book we're using, but it's my plug. It's one of my favorite books on um, just seeing the, the whole uh, Bible as scripture. And uh, Michael Goheen and Craig Bartholomew say this: In order to understand our world, to make sense of our lives, and to make our most important decisions about how we ought to be li- how we ought to be living, we depend on some story. In fact, among some philosophers, theologians, and biblical scholars, there's growing recognition that a story is the best way of talking about the way the world actually is. And I think we see that in our world that, like, even outside of the church and biblical study, people are beginning to realize, like. Um, boy, there's, there's a lot, like, we're drawn to story, and, and we believe some story, right? Um, we believe political stories, we believe national stories, we believe stories about our family, stories about our vocation. Um, so there's something really powerful about, about story. Um, this was another one, just as long as we're on, on story, another one of my favorite writers is um, Donald Miller, which he kind of took a weird turn and started doing, like... Um, you know, like marketing stuff or whatever. But in the beginning, he wrote a, great, wrote a great book called Blue Light Jazz, which is one of my favorite favorite books of all time. But he he says this is kind of a framework for understanding story, and so because we can say like, oh yeah, I love a good I love a good story and. Boy, that's, a, yeah, I, that makes sense about the Bible. But then how do we, how do we understand the Bible as a story? Well, um, a story has components. And I just love the way he, he breaks it down. He says, this is a story. It's a character who has a problem and meets a guide who gives them a plan and calls them to action that helps them avoid failure and ends in success. Something like, interesting. Like, you could, you could in some ways, use that as a template and share the gospel with someone, right? because um, who's the character? It's, it's us, right? It's people. Who's the guide? It's, it's God. Um, and there's a problem, and so we need a plan, and we're going to start to learn about that plan um, today. All right, I'm going to take us through, I'm going to, what I want to invite you into is, is instead of seeing um, the Bible in chapters and verses, and I think for me, when I started to see uh, understand the scriptures. This story. One of the important dynamics was um, actually recovering from a disease. You might have heard of this disease. You might have been afflicted by this disease. It's called versitis. Versitus. It afflicts a lot of evangelical Christians worldwide. Um, but versitus is like that we 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 just like we lock in on memorizing a lot of Bible verses, but we don't memorize them in any kind of context. Um, And and we miss that it's all tied together in this beautiful way. So I'm, for the record, not against memorizing Bible verses, but I'm just saying, if that's all we do and we miss the story, then we miss the power of the scriptures. And you know, when the scriptures were were originally written, um, if you didn't know this, they weren't written in English originally. I know. And they weren't written in the King James English either. I've had that argument. Um, they were written in ancient languages. The text that we're reading right now was written in ancient Hebrew, um, which if we had a Hebrew Bible, you would actually read it this way, um, backwards. Um, and it it had just beautiful characters. So it wasn't, you know, written in, in our language. It also wasn't written with little numbers beside of it. That was added later. Right. Um, And so I want to invite you to to kind of reimagine instead of seeing like chapter one, verse one, which are great helpful ways to study, to see it instead in in scenes, like think of it like a movie, you know, because that's how our brain works in images, right? Um, We think in images. Did you know that? You don't think in words, you think in pictures, that words just evoke pictures in your brain. And so that's why movies are are so powerful, you know, because it's images that are telling a story, right? Some music in there, and you really have something. So I want to I want to look today at kind of four scenes and just invite us to kind of think that way as we're going through the, the text. Um, so the first scene is just um, the opening scene of creation. This is the the creation narrative um, that a lot of us are familiar with that we've just finished reading together. Um, the the second scene is is the fall, okay, um, where there's you know a conflict that's introduced into into our story. Um, our, our third um, icon is the flood, the flood that happens. And the fourth is what I love the way uh, the author of our study called it the emergence of nations, which I actually hadn't heard it put that way, but I thought that's a cool way to, to think about it. So four scenes. And so what I want to do today is we're gonna go through the, through these. We're going I'm not gonna talk the whole time, I promise. I'm gonna talk a little bit introduce some things, and then we have two activities that we're going to do at our table, which again, um, like Chris described last week, just to get us connecting our experiences and all that to the things that that we're learning here today, okay? So creation, we'll start here. So the creation narrative, which we see in Genesis 1 and 2, um, if we think of it like a movie, if we think of it like a story right? Then there's three really, like, if you boil story down to to bare bones, you have three things that you have to have to have a story. You have characters, okay? You have a setting, a place where the characters are, you know, doing their thing. And thirdly, you have a plot. And in a plot, there's a whole bunch of of things that happen. You know, we could pull that apart. You have, you know, tension and a, a climax and, you know, resolution, all these different things. But At the most basic level for the story of creation, we have characters, a setting, and a plot. Now, who are the characters that we learn about in in our movie here in Genesis 1? Scene scene 1, Act 1, take God, okay? Jesus, the Holy Spirit, right? From the beginning, the opening verse, you're like, Whoa! This is the beginning of a great movie, you know. Um, yeah, you have you have the Trinity, there there in the beginning, right? Um, what what who who else? We're gonna go we're gonna come back and talk a lot more about you know what we learn about these characters because we learn a lot. But what are the other characters? So we have we have God who's um, complex. What else? Who else? Man, Adam. Yeah, Adam. And did you know, and I think this is in the book that, you know, in Hebrew, the word Adam, it means man, right? Um, so, but we have a, a man, the first man, Adam. Um, who else? Sure. Serpent. Yeah, we have the serpent. He, he comes in in Genesis 3. Um, who else, or what else is, is there? Eve. Eve. Yeah, at, at a certain point, we have Eve enter the story, right? In a, again, great movie. All right, Adam, need you to take a nap. <laughs> it's going to be amazing, though, when you wake up. Um, and so we have these characters. Now, what about, what about the setting? What's the setting of, of our little movie? A beautiful garden. Yeah. What do we learn about the garden? What do you know about that? If you can picture it in your mind's eye, in our movie, what do you see? Paradise. 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 What? Tell me more. Like what? What's in paradise? The through, uh, everything, everything they need. Yeah. 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 No, it's, it's beautiful, paradise, they have everything they need. And so this is where, like, I really want you to start, ima- use your, you're supposed to, when you read this, feel and, and imagine with your senses, you know, it's not just the words on the page, it's think of what that would be like to be in a place where every single need was, well, you didn't lack a thing, you, you, you didn't know need, everything everything was met in this place. What else does does our text tell us about the setting? There's two trees? Yeah. The movie gets better. Whoa, there's two weird trees. <laughs> Something's about to happen. Ominous music, right? What What else? Somebody? David? Animals. Yeah, there's animals, right? It's not just the people and God. There's actually, it's, it's teeming with life, right? I get the picture, and this is not, this is just Gabe. This is, so don't, like... I'm not misquoting the scripture, but when I imagine this, I'm like, this is a big place. Like somehow, because of the flannel graphs that I grew up with, I'm like, the garden, the garden was pretty small, you know? Um, but then when you think about it, you're like, "All oh, these animals and species, they all had to exist. And like, how long did it take for Adam to name all these things? Like, right? It doesn't tell us because time's not really a factor at this point. It's probably like a long time that he's, that he's going around doing this. You get my point. We could go on and on and on and on, but there's a way of reading that where the story just begins to come alive, where you see all the characters and and it invites you to imagine what it was like and to put yourself in this setting. And then what's our plot? What happens in this first creation narrative? Just what's the, somebody tell me what's the story? Okay, <laughs> I love it. Learning already, yeah, absolutely. There's a character that has a big problem, <laughs> yeah. So we we see that in in the beginning, God, um, he he creates. He's there. He's present. He's pre-existing everything. You know, I think just to point out a few of the circumstances. There's in verse two three parallel clauses um, that where it says the earth was formless and void. The, the word earth is actually the same word for land. So if you imagine the he, original Hebrew readers, land is a, a very significant concept or term um, in the life of the Hebrew people, because that's that's like everything they're hoping for, right? Um, is, is So it says the earth was formless and void. And it says, number two, darkness, there's darkness over the surface of the deep. Now, what was the deep? In, in the Bible, what, what what do you imagine when you imagine the deep? When you hear that, like, what do you think of? Water. What else? What do you feel? Cold. Yeah. Dark. Dread. What's that? Empty. Empty. Yeah. So there's all these, so again, we're back to feeling, you know, what, what was the context here when Before the creatures come, before the people come, there's the earth formless and void. There's darkness over the surface of the deep. And number three, the spirit of God is hovering over the waters. And we could literally spend all night just on those three points, like if we wanted to, but we can't. Um, But that's the context. And so out of that context, God, out of nothing, right? Which is, this is a very important theological point as Christians, that as we're becoming disciples, you can make disciples is that we believe that God made the world out of nothing, that he was pre-existed everything, right? He wasn't made, he just always was. Um, he's the beginning, he's the end, um, and that he everything that's made, he makes. And that God has a name, right? And then we learn that in chapter 2 verse 4, what is God's name? Yahweh. Yahweh. Okay, Yahweh, which if you're if you're Hebrew, like we don't they don't say the name because It's it's too sacred and too holy to even say. Something interesting. I remember studying Hebrew. That you know, the it's a very poetic language, and the word Yahweh. Like, what does that sound like? Yahweh, Yahweh, breath, Breath, right? It's wind, breath, right? Um, Life. Um, So his very name. So it's this very personal God, right? From the beginning, we learned so much that this personal God that came before everything creates this man and this woman. And um, but we learn that he is the arbiter of what's good and bad right away because he says, "This is good." And when he gets to the man, the woman, what does he say? Very good. And so we learn a very another important theological point: not just that God created, but God is the one who decides what's good and what's bad. And so this is our setting, and we won't have time tonight to go into all the theological points that that we we could take out of this. But we learn an awful lot about who who God is. Now, there is one thing I want to cover, though, before we um, take a break into our activity, which is in Genesis 1, 26 through 27. I'd love to have somebody read that. Who has a loud voice and wants to to read? Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Oh, over here. Yes, sir. Is that Liam? All right. Boom. Nailed it, man. That was great. Good job. Thank you. Um, So there's a lot there that Liam read for us. So, but this word, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Um, And then he, at the end says, so he created man in his image, in the image of God. So you kind of get this idea that the word image might be important. Um, And our book pointed out um, some things about this, which are really interesting um, facts. But um, here's what I want to say about image. Because this is, I think, a moment that maybe for you, maybe this is something you've heard. But this may be an opportunity um, for for you to have a moment with with the Lord um, tonight too, because um, what we we learn is that God gives value to people, right? Before they do a thing, before he gives them all these mandates, before he gives them, this is called the creation mandate, where it's, you know, go and, and have dominion and do all this thing. He says, but I made you in my image, right? And what does that mean? You know, the author of our study points out that um, it's similar like um, kings in the ancient times would be thought of, of of having an image of a God and they believed in lots of pagan gods. Um, but this is a living God um, breathing life into a living image. And, and so there were image bearers. And I think the way I've always like loved thinking about this is that what this means is, is that um, God's plan to reveal himself to the world right in the beginning of our movie is not that he's going to, he, because he's God, he could just hover over everything and be like, you know, whoa, all right, there he is, that's God. But he, instead he says, no, I'm making mankind man and woman in my image so that when the world looks at you, what do they see? Me. And, and, and that's the that's the plan. And um, at our table, we were talking about it. Um, it's significant that later, because we'll talk about, um, when we get to the Tower of Babel, this word ethnos gets introduced, of the, the, the nations get introduced. Um, and so if we think about identity, which is a huge question in our culture right now, and a huge question if you're a human being, you're like, who am I, right? Who am I and what am I worth and where does my value come from? And if we're all honest, We're tempted to get our value in all kinds of things, in places, our work and our family and our looks and our popularity and all these things. But what God says is the first place that you get your identity is right here in Genesis 1. It's that you were made in the image of God. That before you did anything, before, you know, you created any value in the, on the earth before your ethnic identity, before, you know, what color your skin is, before there was even languages, before there was even nations, God gave this identity. And this is such an important theological point in our culture, is that we remember that our image, that our identity comes first in this verse, that it's in made in the image of God, that because He made us because He called us good, that that is who we are before we're anything else. Um, which, by the way, right, is a great entree to the gospel at some point, right? We're going to get there. All right. So image of God's important thing. We're um, made to be royal representatives. And um, you know, I just wrote a note that our one of the primary ways that we represent God is is what I call missional representation. It, which in other words, like it's, you could say, well, there's all kinds of ways that we're like God, because that's where a lot of people take this verse is, how, what are all the ways that we're like God? And that, that's fine to do that. But I think the main purpose of understanding being made in the image of God is your value, number one, but your assignment, number two, which is your assignment. And this goes back to our mission as a church, right? Is tied to the mission of God, which is to make himself known in the world. And how is he going to do that? Through the image bearers. Um, and, and we see that played out and that goes all the way to Matthew 28. And we see how to do that. Okay. So anyway, character setting plot. Um, this is, this is what happens. Um, but what I do need to talk about the next piece before I set you on your exercise. Cause something, something happens this next part, the fall the fall happens. So the paradise is there. They have everything they need, but they're given a choice. There's the two trees in the middle. And so um, somebody said the next character is the serpent who's the deceiver. He's the liar. It's an important thing to note um, that Satan is real. Um, That if in the story, if you believe that God is real in the story and you believe that the man and the woman are real in the story, guess who else is real in the story? The, the snake is real. Okay. And so the serpent, the liar, the deceiver, um, he enters in. And so just a few points on this, we won't go into, I just, this is my summary that again, thinking in terms of story, like if you're thinking plot story, what happens, you got this character, the serpent, the lie. Um, what is the lie, by the way? If you could be like God, did God really say that? Right? um, yeah, you'll, you know, God's, God's actually the liar, you know? And so there's a lot we could say there, but there's these very deceptive, very insidious lies that happen. And so, um, but the man and the woman, they believe it. That leads to disobedience. After the disobedience, then they, they eat the fruit, um, to try to become like God, um, to try to gain awareness. Does that sound familiar? Um, So what happens? What does God do? There's consequences. Yeah. What are some of them? Okay. They get thrown out. First, he does something though. He does throw them out, but there's something important that he does first. What's that? He closed them. He closed them. Now, a lot of scholars say this is the first animal sacrifice and who does it? God kills the animal and clothes them. What does that sound like? End of the story, right? That's the beauty of this movie that we're watching is it's all tied together. So God, even though the man, and the woman completely disobey him, his first act is actually ask him a question. Remember the question? Where are you? Where are you? And where were they? Hiding. Why were they hiding? They were ashamed. And guess what? We've been hiding ever since. Hiding in our shame. But God, the hero of the story, the guide, right? He's asking the question. He's still asking the question Where are you? And he comes to them in their fear and in their shame, and he covers their shame, but it's not complete because it doesn't erase the next thing, which is the consequence, which is the consequence is they have to leave the paradise. What else is the consequence? What's the relational consequence? Separation. Yeah, relational separation. Man has to work. Yeah, I think there was actually work in the garden, but the work becomes something. Hard. Hard. Yeah, the work gets distorted. Everything gets distorted. Um, what's that? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the marriage covenant is divided. Like everything that can be broken is broken, right? In this part of the movie. But what we start to see, so we start to see this separation that the character of the the man and the woman and kind of what they're about and what happens to them, but then the character of God, right? Doesn't change. And it's his grace and him entering in and him pursuing, it's still there. And, the, and the, there's consequences, but he's still pursuing them, right? And that's going to be really important for our story. So I hope you see already how even in these opening chapters, boy, you could tie these threads all the way to the gospels, right? And it's pointing, how crazy is that, Right? when you realize there's thousands of years between these stories (laughs) and it's all connected. Um, It's amazing. Okay, Um, here's what I wanna do. At our tables, um, I'm gonna give you an exercise, which is, um, it's a little bit different, but what I want you to do is using only the creation fall narrative and the text in Genesis, I want you to explain the gospel to someone who's never heard of Jesus. So using the story that we just read, explain the gospel to someone who's never met Jesus before. Any questions? And and why I have somebody share, so make it good. Yeah, yeah, you can't pick Chris. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, no, as a table, I want you to do it as a table. Yeah, great point. Yeah, use, use each other, collaborate, like come up with, you know, maybe write down some notes for when you have to share. All right. Sounds like some, some good uh, theologizing happening around the table. Um, who would like to share? Who's got a great? Okay, table in the corner. The next generation will go first before us. <laughs> Hey Madeline, they can't hear you on the other side. Could you? Do we have a microphone? Oh wait, wait for a mic Madeline's been waiting for a microphone her whole life. <laughs> this is your moment. She's like, I'm gonna kill you later. <laughs> You're gonna see the results of the fall. <laughs> this is my reality. There is a creator, and he created me. I have value, and I have purpose, because I am made in my creator's image. I don't need to search for purpose or worth. I am loved. I belong to the creator of the world who spoke light into the darkness. And this is your reality, too. Nice. <laughs> Drop the mic. That's great. <laughs> Oh, Chris is raising his hand. Oh. (laughs) Yeah, that was great, Madeline. Awesome. Who else would like to go? Different perspectives. It's a creative exercise, so. Yeah. (laughs) But then I wouldn't be on the recording. Um, (laughs) we were created by a relational God and a deceiver convinced us that we didn't need that relationship and the relationship was broken as a result God still gives us care and provision and he covers any of our brokenness in that but there's consequences to that brokenness and we're separated from him but he promises to defeat the deceiver and restore the relationship. Boom, all right, Carrie, that was great. She's a professional writer too, so don't feel bad. Anybody else like to share? All right, well, um, I, I like doing that, like look, looking for, you know, as you're going through the story, particularly in the Old Testament, looking for the gospel, you know, what, what, what is the go- what is the good news, right? And where is it? Um, and that, and that it's there and that it was there all along, right? Um, but it was, but it was hidden and it, it was not just hidden for us. I was thinking of something Chris actually told us uh, last week. Um, he was reading from Luke 24, I think it was. Um, and this is right after Easter, And it's on the road to Emmaus. Remember the risen Jesus encounters two of the disciples and they're like, you know, you haven't heard what happened and all this stuff. And then, um, and then they, you know, and then they recognize him. And he says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And so the, the Moses and the prophets, that starts in Genesis, right? That's the Pentateuch. That's the first five five books of the scriptures. And so I just was telling somebody, I imagine, like some, uh, Tom said, can you imagine if we had a, a recorder uh, uh, that we could have recorded what Jesus would have said about Genesis one through three? Because he said something, right? And so that's what we were just invited to, to, to imagining. Um, where is Jesus in this part of the story? Because he's there. Um, and that's the beauty of, of seeing this thing as a story and seeing it as a movie. And you know, and it is why it's so important not to get to go down too deep, too fast and miss this beauty of this thing and, and how it's all woven together. It's majestic. Um, so in our in our movie, there's two other scenes that we're going to cover briefly, a lot shorter than that. The first one is obviously that's the big one, right? The, the creation, the fall that we want to get, um, which, by the way, just before we, we move on to the next scenes, you know, um, what we just talked about and the truth that's there, and what we learn about um, who God is and um, what evil looks like, and who we are, and what's actually going on in the world, right? It's a it's a countercultural story, guys. Um, that's a story that if you held up what our culture believes and the stories that um, are being told, because there's stories that are being told, narratives that are being told, right? But it, it's a story over and against those stories of the world, which I'll just set just as a plug for why, why come to church on Sunday? It's because every week we are basically holding a protest against the story of the world. And what we're, way we're protesting is we're worshiping and we're telling the true story. And, and so uh, maybe you didn't know that, but you're a rebel um, being here at New City Church. Um, Okay. So the next thing that happens is uh, we, we mentioned there's, these consequences that that happen as a result of the fall, part of the consequences they have to leave paradise. They're now, but they're, they still have life, right? They're still God doesn't kill them. Remember, he, he covers them, He preserves them, but but they can't be in His presence. They can't be in um, in the garden itself. Um, and things go poorly outside of the garden, and the story starts to unravel pretty quickly um, in the family system, which is. Like, again, boy, so much to talk about there that we don't have time to go into. But um, what happens in the family of Adam and Eve? What's the story? Cain and Abel, right? And all the parents are like, oh, boy, this is where it gets real. Um, so what what does Cain do? Kills his brother. So wait, I mean, just if you're thinking in story again, you're like, wait a second, a scene ago where' in the perfect garden and you have all your needs met and everything's great and now you're the dad of a family where the, your son's killing his brother. Whoa. Like put again, the invitation is put yourself in the story. Feel that feeling. What in the world? Do you feel the devastation? I mean, com- complete wreckage of life. Is, is happening. And so murder is in, introduced. And sometimes I just think we gloss way over these things. Like, let's get to the good part of the Bible. It's like, this is the good part. You know, because this is the part where we feel it acutely. We feel the consequences of the, of the sin. Um okay, and, and so what else happens outside of the garden? What happens to work? Somebody mentioned it earlier. It's hard, it's toil. We can identify with that. Okay. Um, So basically this life outside the garden um, continues to go this way. And it says that cities are developed. And so basically this progression of civilization happens, which is fascinating. It says the cities start to be developed. Um, And then in Genesis 6, 5, um, it it says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of his heart was only evil continually. Wow. Sit with that for a second. The wickedness of man was great. Every intention of his heart was only evil continually. Remember evil, we met evil, right? Evil was a lie. It started with one lie. The lie felt pretty good back there. It felt like it's pretty close to the truth. It doesn't seem that bad, but now this thing is snowballed. And so, uh, eventually people's sin was so great that God decides to wipe them out. And so it actually, it says that, right? And so again, if you're thinking in scenes, there's that point in the movie, you're like, wait a second, God who is good and benevolent and gracious and who covered and who did all these things is now so angry that he wants to wipe out everything that he's created. Um, so you sit in that for a minute. Whoa. Okay. Severe consequence. Genesis 6, 8 Twist in the story, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and so then we're introduced to this this new story. Um, what a movie, huh? Um, that God in the, His um, creativity goes to Noah and has him build this boat, this ark of refuge. And um, so he preserves this line. And this is an important theological point that I just want to highlight is that the the significance of lineage is something that we need to pay attention to as we're going through our story, that there's a line, right, from Adam, right? And we track that line and God preserves a line. Um, And there's sons that uh, live and sons that die. Uh, Later we'll learn, um, you know how God preserves that through the nation of, of Israel but this family lineage is incredibly important and the, the way God preserves it is not random is that he chooses a people and he works through this line um, And so the line goes to Noah um, and that Noah who found favor, who was the only righteous man it says on the earth, um, he saves them in this incredible way and then he wipes out everything else with this, this giant flood. And then the flood is over and says, the boat comes to rest. And we know that that story on the mountain. And, and so, uh, they, they leave the boat and, and then this is significant is the other thing that you need to know and pay attention to in our story is this idea of covenant is that God issues covenants, which what does a covenant mean? A promise that God makes a promise. Okay. But God's promises aren't like our promises. Um, thank goodness. God's promises, He He promises that He will uphold and He will bear responsibility for making sure that this thing comes to pass. The thing that, that, that no matter what the other party does, that God is going to make sure that it happens, right? He takes ultimate responsibility. And so God uh, re-reissues. I love that language that was in our book. He reissues. The creation blessing, remember the creation blessing, the creation mandate, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's what God told Adam and Eve when they were in the perfect garden, that they had a, they had value, that they were made in his image, that uh, they have an assignment and purpose in the world, um, that they're to be image bearers, that they're to subdue the creation, that they're actually to be in a covenant bonds of marriage and be fruitful, multiply, filling the earth. Why are they filling the earth? Um, to fill the earth with his glory this is his plan. So uh, all of it goes bad outside of the garden, but God reissues this exact, in the exact same language to Noah. And then it says, God makes a covenant with Noah. So he makes a promise. And one of the things uh, you'll learn as we go through the Old Testament is there was ancient Near Eastern um, practices of like how, to, how kings would make promises to each other. And so, our the things that happen in the scripture um, like mirror that. So, this idea of making a covenant to the original readers of our text would have been like, oh, yeah, that's when a king makes an alliance with another king, they make a promise, and there's something that seals the promise, right? There's something that we can look at and say, you know, remember that time we made that promise? Um, there it is, and I'm remembering my promise. And so it says, God makes this covenant promise with Noah and seals it with the rainbow. And I want to camp here for a second because this is something you don't hear a lot, but I think this is incredibly powerful. The symbol of the rainbow, it's the, the Hebrew word is the word bow. And it's the same word bow as the other kind of bow, which is a, what kind of bow? Archery bow, right? But which way is the bow? pointing back at God. What's the dangerous end of the arrow back at God. So the image is actually um, some scholars think an image of God absorbing the violence upon himself, that he's just done violence, like violence has happened. Lots of death and destruction has happened on the earth. That's the context death and violence. And so the image of the bow isn't just this pretty colors. It's actually a sign of violence that God's saying, I, I will absorb the violence the next time. And that's, and so it's actually a symbol of the gospel. Um, it's a symbol of, of God absorbing violence upon himself, which reminds us of what? Jesus. That's the image of the cross. So we have this powerful image, we have this reissuing of the promise and the blessing to Noah. Um, and so our story continues. And where we end tonight is with our emergence of nations, um, which actually is not a big part in the text, but it's kind of a big deal, um, is that, so God preserves uh, through the line of Shem. So Abraham has three sons, and, uh, but through Shem, God preserves a way. Um, and again, this is telling us about God's grace. And again, it's pointing to the gospel that through Shem, through Noah, there's, there's this line where ultimately he's going to fulfill this covenant promise that he makes with Noah, right? To preserve the earth, to absorb the violence. Um, and so it says that there's nations that come from Shem, then the nations come into being. And so, Uh, there's this scene that's really, again, like, because we're like Christians and we read the Bible, we're like, oh yeah, that's a familiar scene, the the Tower of Bible. But just think, imagine if you're watching a movie and you're like, you go from the flood to this and now people are like, people are evil again. And they're like making a plan and they're like, they forgot God again. And they're like, no, it's not about God. It's about like, we're just, we're going to make ourselves famous. That's actually what the text says. We're going to make ourselves famous. That sound familiar? We're going to make ourselves famous by building a giant building, right? That everybody can look at. um, And we're going to be powerful. And it says they're actually doing it. They're actually coming together. And so God does an act of judgment and an act of grace at the same time and that he comes in and he confuses their tongues so it says at that point in the story of humanity, everybody speaks the same language. Um, and so he causes them to speak in different tongues. And the word there is ethnos, which is important, I think for us culturally, because that's the same word for nation. Um, and so uh, as a result of his judgment, the ethnos is created, the nations are created, different peoples of the earth. Um, are, are actually created and, and sent out. And here's where we're ending tonight is this is the context for our kingdom life, right? Is that we, we now live in a world where there's nations, a nation's rising against nations. And so this is just part of, of the context, but what is the ultimate vision for kingdom life at the end of the story? We're cheating and moving ahead a little bit. Just a little bit, at the end of the story in the scriptures, what what happens? Restoration. Restoration, right? It's it's an image of kingdom, one king, one kingdom, right? And so there's a vision that will be um, restored um, under a unified king, but this is our context, and so we still find ourselves in this part of the story, um, and where this came from. So a lot more we could say. Um, it's been been awesome um, going through this with you. I want to leave you with a um, before we give a couple of minutes for um, a devotional, I think we still have a couple of minutes. Um, <clears throat> this is a book that Bob Schindler put me onto. If Bob tells you you should read a book, you read it. That's just what happens. He's the coach. Um, so but this is the rise and triumph of the modern self. And it's just a book about actually our culture and about the, the untrue stories that we believe and why we believe them. And so this is the first page. It says, in his 1983 Templeton Prize address, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, I'm probably saying that wrong. Solzhenitsyn, there you go. Offered this summary explanation for why all the horrors of Soviet communism came to pass. Quote, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Uh, this answer is also a valid explanation for the crisis enveloping the West today, including the widespread falling away from the faith, the disintegration of the family, a loss of communal purpose, erotomania, erasing the boundaries between male and female, and a general spirit of demonic destruction that denies the sacredness of human life because men have forgotten God, they have also forgotten man, and that's why all this has happened. And so why study the story? That's where I want to leave us why remember these stories? Why focus on the story? Because the stories of the world are killing us and we're, we're the hope of the world. And that's it. All right. Well, um, I'm going to give you five minutes to just pull out your journal and write down something that was meaningful for you. Maybe it was a quote, maybe it was a passage or something like that. And then um, we'll briefly pray and then we'll go home. All right. Uh, the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. All right, well, um, feel free to continue to write in your journal. I'm just going to share a couple of announcements and then pray for us. Um, if you want the audio from any of these lectures, we are recording it, and it's um, newcity.us slash academy audio. Um, and uh, if that, if you need that, see Tammy. Um <laughs> She'll email it out, but that's where it is. Um, if you can stay and clean up, that's great. We, we need four or five folks to just, if, if a few of us stay, it goes fast and we help um, Will out, tie up trash bags, uh, place our table supplies in the zippered bags on our table, um, and, but leave the table stands out of the bag. Don't put those in there. And then please take food to go. Um, we need the food to go. And then, ta- and then table leaders take attendance, if you haven't done that already. Um, thank, thank you all for being here. Um, it's, uh, it's amazing to spend this time with you. Let me pray for us. Um, Father, we, just, we thank you for the grand story uh, of the good news and how you've been writing it for thousands of years and how you're weaving together all things, not just the things in our lives, but the things in all of creation are weaving together for your ultimate purpose and your good. We just thank you that um, in your grace and goodness and kindness toward us, that you made us in your image, that you spoke value to us, that you've um, seen us, that you've called us your sons and daughters because of the work of Jesus. And we thank you that we're in the last days, um, that the kingdom has already been ushered in, that the light has broken into the darkness. And that your kingdom is coming in fullness. And so, Lord, I pray for each of us that um, in the difficulties of this week and in, in parenting and in work and in finances and all the all the various things that we face, that we struggle with, that we're consumed by, Lord, that in the face of those things that you remind us that we're your beloved and that you're writing a beautiful story and that we're a part of it. Thank you, Lord, for your love and for this body. And we lift up all these things in the precious name of Jesus, amen.